I hate efficiency. I think efficiency is the is the devil, and efficiency is what kills the world and kills humanity. And it's a really seductive, um, a really seductive beast because you think things are better because they're efficient, but it's actually just stripping us of our of our soul. And uh, uh, kind of use the analogy, or not the analogy. Look at any kind of science fiction writer when they set stuff in the future. Really efficient, soulless, lose our individual individuality. Walk in unison, all wear spandex, all have the same haircuts, all that kind of stuff. What I'm noticing at the moment, my days now are really efficient. Uh, so I'm on Zoom. I'm having these efficient meetings back to back to back to back to back, and then I stop work, and and that and then I start the next day again. Yeah, okay. And it's so efficient, and it's almost I'm scared it's becoming soulless. And I think, oh shit! It just worries me when I when it's much more efficient to have all these meetings rather than get in the car or get in a cab and go somewhere and have a meeting. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not so average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Adam Ferrier, consumer psychologist and founder of Thinkabell, popular public speaker and author of recent release, Stop Listening to the Customer and previous popular read, The Advertising Effect, How to Change Behaviour. Former strategy planner at Saatchi and Saatchi, co-founder and global head of strategy at Naked Communications, current board member of Tribe and co-founder of the Marketing Science Ideas Exchange and more. We discuss Adam's take on these crazy times we are all presently living through and how it is hard to predict what new behaviours will stick and which will revert back. How will consumer behaviours change as a result of COVID-19? Adam shares some insight as to why leaders should stop listening to their customers, but rather be confident and true to the brand and what makes it distinctive. We discuss how user-centred design and CX is often more so about boring efficiency than better for the brand or the customer. We discuss the pratfall effect, optimism bias, brands performing well in the chaos, and lots, lots more. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Adam. I'm going to start off, um, oh, I guess it's a interesting question at this time how are you feeling <laughs> i'm uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question isn't it it's kind of multi-layered i feel uh, very good in my domicile my little domestic world is is quite nice um but i'm as worried as fuck about uh about the world and you know i, I noticed i'm having a, a few different types of anxiety dreams around uh coronavirus and that kind of thing so it's weighing on me at, some level, that's for sure. Mm. It's all been so so fast, hasn't it? Right. You as a child, so what were you like when you were about eight? Can you remember? Yeah, I was I was 
um, pretty much as I am now. I was, um, uh, I used to get fascinated by things, and I could, um, I could be entertained with a block of wood. So, so my, you know, I can remember my mum saying she just put like a duster in front of me or something, and I would be able to play with that duster for a long time. Uh, but I, I also remember having kind of social kind of concerns and stuff like that. I just don't reckon there's that much difference between adults and kids. I reckon we're pretty much going through the same shit. Yeah. So how does, how does your child inform your adult? So you're saying um, you're about the same. So I had, I had, a, I had a, a, a childhood experience of having an artist as a mum and a judge as a dad. And the artist mum really encouraged me to, to be lateral and free and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Dave gave me kind of a sense of, I don't know, right and wrong or civic responsibility or something. But it's kind of the, my mum was the dominant force and um, really encouraged freedom of expression, breaking rules, being unconventional. I never used to uh, wear shoes to school or, or never used to eat. It, just, it was just quite, I was a free range kid. I was yeah. very much out there just yeah. doing my thing. What type of artist was your mum? Uh, visual art, mainly a visual artist, musician. So the, the house, the house I grew up in, every room inside and outside the house is mosaic. Um, and also, you know, but has turned her art, her turned her craft into lots of different things as a dressmaker for a while as well. My other, I've got, one, one sister's in advertising as well. She's a copywriter, really good. And the other one's an artist, uh, and mainly a visual artist, but with a lot of uh, hardcore feminist themes and Indigenous rights themes all yeah, through, yeah. Her, through her art. Yeah, good. It's crazy times, which um, particularly hit Australia, probably start of, start of March in particular. Um, what's the weirdest thing you've seen over the last week that's kind of really taking you off, off balance and thought, wow, that's, <laughs> I never would have expected that? There's so um, much weird, isn't there? So, um, yeah, probably people smiling at me as I'm walking down the street. In, <laughs> so in what way is that weird? Just, it's, it almost feels like the Truman Show. Everyone is so polite and friendly to each other. It's like, oh, fuck, we've all been naughty. We've all been bad. We all better start being good to each other. So everyone's acting in really civil, polite, lovely ways. And I'm stopping and having conversations on the street with people and talking about shit. And it's kind of one. It's kind of weird. It's it's beautiful and lovely that we're all trying to find ways to connect with each other again. But you know, it's also kind of weird and and it's, it's somewhat unnatural for someone like myself to engage in as well. Yeah. Do you think that's because early on we kind of felt awkward about those conversations? I, I walk to work most days, and I'm obviously not doing it at the moment. But I found for a little while it was almost going: should we be out here or not? Um, should yeah. we be smiling? It was a bit like it felt like I don't I know reckon, how to respond. And I reckon it's more pragmatic. I reckon it's more practical than that. We know what to talk about, so we know we're all experiencing a common thing together, and so therefore we know how to interact with people and go, "Gosh, this is weird, isn't it?" Or even you, like talking to me now, mm-hmm. but we know we know what the social code is on what we should be talking about. And in a, such a fragmented society, I think we find it hard. Not to interact with people because we don't quite know what how to mm-hmm. pitch the conversation because we don't have common interests. But coronavirus has given us all a common interest to talk yeah, okay. about. 
Uh, and so it makes it easier to, to enter into a conversation uh, and then go from there. So I reckon that's probably the main thing. The second thing is probably people are being locked up at home and trying to enjoy having a conversation with someone as well, obviously. Yeah, yeah, there we go. So you don't get people crossing the road when they see a guy with a beard and long hair? I get it a lot. <laughs> I had my hair, I peroxided my, peroxided my hair a few years ago and I, and, uh, and I could just, you could feel people kind of going like that when you walk <laughs> past them. Um, but I still, I, yeah, and I'm quite tall and quite big, so I, I feel like I, and I'm pretty weird looking, so I, pretty, I think I do freak people out a bit. Yeah. Anyway. So you're, you, would you refer to yourself as a consumer psychologist, uh, like a, like, would you say by behavioural psychologist, or like, what, what would you sort of say your kind of areas of interest or profession I call myself a consumer psychologist mainly. In Australia, that's not a registrable term. So I'm a psychologist, and there's eight different terms you can call yourself. A clinical psychologist, forensic psych, health psych, counselling psych. And those eight terms are registered by different bodies. In America and the UK, a consumer psychologist is one of those terms, but we have no tertiary tertiary uh, hmm. system into consumer psychology. However, I've got a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in marketing. I've been in advertising a lot. Um, I feel more comfortable calling myself a consumer psychologist than I do a clinical psychologist, uh, even though I have a clinical master's, uh, but I didn't ever get registered. So yeah. I wouldn't be allowed to call myself a clinical psych anyway, even if I wanted to. Yeah. So over the last four or five weeks in Australia, what have you kind of seen as the kind of changing consumer behaviours and like the, the you've kind of thought that that's quite interesting with like toilet papers being one of the big ones where you go to a supermarket now it's like toilet paper never existed and um, yeah when the, when the toilet paper thing started i did write a little article talking about the fact that it is born you know when times are tough we tend to hoard and we tend to kind of revert back and come into our own home and start mm-hmm. to become more individualistic and uh and skewed probably, you know, towards a little bit more right wing as well, if you like, or, or, or um, the rights of the individual. And within that, I think we tend to buy signifiers and things that reflect our domicile. And uh, so I reckon people are, um, you know, hoarding or buying a few extra rights. So lots of, a few people are going nuts and going a bit crazy. Most people are buying a couple of extra items mm-hmm. of everything. Uh, and so, and that's creating obviously scarcity on the on the shelves and so forth. So I think that's the most um, noticeable kind of consumption pattern. Yeah, and you, you had you had the thing. You, I think I think I can recall you sort of thinking that sort of that'll kind of pass rather quickly, and then we'll go back to normal. But like, it, obviously, it's sort of it's still. I think we had a staff member that was going out every morning of the week trying to look for toilet paper, and still, I think they found some. Like it was like gold, and I got a niece who um, is a teacher and they got given, rather than Easter eggs this year, they got given toilet paper. So it's <laughs> amusing but sort of bizarre. But I, how can you predict? Like, how, how do you, are you kind of looking and going, this is a prediction of how it will roll out? Or are you kind of like just just softening into it and sort of seeing, like, no, I'm not learning from to, it as you go? And I'm, le- I'm much more on the learning from it as I go. We're about to do a little study um, asking experts asking a whole group of uh, experts what they think mm-hmm. will be the result and then we're going to amalgamate that data i don't think there's any point asking individuals mm-hmm. where they think it's going to go um what's that because they just don't know and they just i don't i don't think they know and i think even if you amalgamated all of that i, I don't think you'd have enough outliers of that so we're so but um to to make that interesting 
Um, you know, but I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit like, it's a bit like predicting uh, when you're, it's a bit like for me, it feels like if I've got my football team and it's going up against uh, an opponent really high on the ladder, mm. I'm really hopeful uh, that my team's going to win. But I, in my heart of hearts, I know we're going to lose. Yeah. And so I kind of constantly feel very hopeful that this is all going to be over very soon and keep on looking for evidence to suggest it's all going to be okay quickly. But something kind of a bit more rational kind of plays out the long game and thinks, mm. oh, shit, we're, we're here for a while. Yeah. And I've seen that manifest into the anxiety all of us have kind of having in in our minds, really. Like, and I'm sure you're the same, like that you have that bit of going, I hope it gets better. And I think I heard the term recently, someone said it's optimism bias. People think it's going to finish early, so it's optimism bias. But it's hope. We need hope. We need to kind of know that there's yeah. light at the end of the tunnel. But at the same time, it is being realistic that this might go on for the year. It might go on for more than that. We just don't know. So Yeah. And I think optimism bias has a limit as well. You know, like um, it's a bit trite to be talking about optimism bias when in the middle of world wars and stuff like that. And I feel like we're now kind of leaning into the fact that this is going to be quite a traumatic event mm. and trauma uh, at this scale uh, lasts, it can last generations, mm. you know. We're not just talking weeks or months here or even years. So you would look at it and see this is a historic, unprecedented time that will be different post-COVID-19 than before? Is that fair? On my, on my darkest days, I think of something like the World Wars or the Holocaust, and I, I imagine I look at this and think, is this what we're going through now? On my brighter days, I think um, uh, hopefully this will be over in a month or so. Mm. Um, I've just been very nicely being bought a cup of coffee by, okay. my, by my wife. <laughs> I'm just on a thing, babe. Thanks, mate. Thank you, so do you like, and I guess that's sort of from a researcher side, I'm not sure from a psychologist side, it's watching it unfold to try to make sense of it all. So it's sort of really going, to, in my mind, it's going to some of the discussions we've been having, it's sort of unprecedented, it's different to World War, but it, it's kind of, it's it's sort of probably as unstabling to, obviously that stretched out over the five, five years or so. Um, it's different to a, a GFC where that was probably more economic and yes, people lost their jobs, but it was probably more, on a business side, where this is, this is, I guess, yeah, personally I mean, impacting. That's right. Dan, Daniel Kahneman said, nothing's as big as you think it is, especially when you're thinking about it. And that kind of applies to everything. We tend to magnify the importance of things, uh, good and bad, uh, at, the, at the time it's happening. So I, so I think about that. And then I also think about, oh, shit, you know, what's, there's nothing special about us or our generation or anything. We, too, can go through catastrophe or whatever it is we you know so and this is probably the lead indicator that we're entering into that yeah. so i really hope that it's you know we're making a mountain out of molehill but i really don't think so yeah yeah so it really it, it's, it's difficult to say at this point in time of what's going it's to difficult to say and we'll lean towards you know as you say it's nicer to have a, you know we're born with we're all born with an optimism bias to help us feel like we're in control of the world mm. and the more we can lean into that the easier it makes every day yeah. um yeah, yeah. So but, you, man, this is dark. This is pretty. It's not dark, is it? It's good. It's good to explore these things. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. So, and did you? I guess it's. Would you say we're too early on in this to really know 
what behaviors are going to change permanently and and what are just sort of what are just changing with the time so the the behaviors you're looking at going well that's going to be a that was the i guess the the burning deck or that was the push that meant it meant we changed more permanently moving forward yeah so when it first started uh i thought it'd be over very quickly because most things are because of our optimism bias when the uh negative things occur, we tend to forget about them very, very quickly. It's also why the share price tends to bounce right back up after Mm -hmm. brands experience disasters and stuff like that. Um, And there's not really a long tail of behaviour. We operate in patterns of behaviour. So for one-off events, don't really change anything. So we tend to, if there's a one-off event, we tend to, you know, behave, behave, the event happens, and then we keep on behaving like that. Mm -hmm. The exception is when the event is cataclysmic and massive. And maybe, you know, something like the internet coming along, that changed behaviour. That, that, that The generation who's experienced the internet is behaves very, very mm-hmm. differently because there was, a long, there was a long tail to that, social media and so forth. They're behaving differently than other generations. The war made people behave differently after the, uh, people who experienced the war. And, you know, there's some areas and, uh, that are still economically depressed because of what happened to that particular area during World War II. Um, so I think this is one of those things. It will have a long tail of how it will change people's behaviour because the event is big and it will continue for some time. And so therefore we're going to learn a new pattern of behaviour. It's not a, it's not a blip, if you like. Mm. That new pattern of behaviour, I reckon, might be more akin to, you know, if we've moved from a um, tribal society or civil society overall, it might be just coming back down to tribalism a little bit more and coming back down to understanding the home and the street and the mm. community and consuming in in ways that express that rather than identifying necessarily more as a global citizen and those kind of things. Yeah. I guess some of the work we were doing and I was doing was looking at that, I guess I call it counterbalancing. So counterbalancing globalisation that globalization promised so much and it's offered so much but also it's kind of taken bits away from our life this is sort of in the past few years so we're kind of coming we're being forced to come back to local our our, our borders have been closed off travel's been closed off and the other one i guess was looking at was um growth like business had to grow like each year like a, a bank was expected to grow or a an ad agency or a research company was expected to grow that's just that's just what it was and now we're talking about you might you're likely not going to grow, or is a, is a general sort of sense for many businesses. So yeah. sustainability I, becomes more of a thing, is it? Yeah, I reckon that's I reckon that's really interesting as well. We've had we've had a whole lot of brands over the last ten years experience with kind of uh, social capitalistic business models and business models that allow them to, to have a sustained approach to business in a way that's not uh, raping the world. Um, and I think, you know, brands that can kind of crack that code are definitely going to uh, be rewarded, I think. Mm. So you've obviously got some great brands as your clients and you don't have to reveal any hidden secrets, but what what are you saying to them? Obviously, like, I'm assuming sort of when did it all kind of hit and when they sort of started saying, oh, shit, what's, what's, um, what's going on here and how do we deal with it? What, was that sort of mid-March, you would have thought? Or like when, when were you sort of getting the... Yeah, I mean, I can remember giving some really bad advice early on saying, yeah, this isn't going to be, you know, this is going to be over soon. And everyone's, you know, just trying to sell newspapers by um, by appealing to a, to our negative, negative side and stuff like that. I mean, I was just wrong on a thousand different times then. And so I'm pretty... Um, 
at the moment it kind of feels like empathy is a good skill, just 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 bunkering down and and empathising with the situation for some clients, and just kind of um get it, trying to trying to mass data points together and then work out a narrative from those various data points, uh, and then others is just like some other clients are riding the wave of these change consumer patterns and their business is booming mm-hmm. and um and and it's just about how to um how brand communicates in a way that doesn't feel opportunistic and when their business is going really well in times that are uh, pretty shitty and then and then you've got others in the middle who the whole world saying, you know, just advertise during the recession, just advertise during a recession. You know, that's the best time to advertise. And they're going, well, uh, that's great. But, you know, who's going to see it? Uh, how can people buy my product? And, and you know, and so I think there's, I think there needs to be a bit more um, thought done. The brands I don't think are, re- uh, on that, the brands I think are really, really interesting or really inspiring are the ones that are uh, pivoting their entire business models to, make sense of new customer um, behaviours. And the most clear example of that is our client, or a clear example of that is our client, One Three Cabs, yeah. who, you know, is, we did a, launched a One Three Things and has become a, basically a courier business. And being a courier is now 50% of their revenue um, and it's probably going to get higher than 50% very, very shortly. So I love that. We work with another company yeah. called so Foodie Care. We've won three cabs. So that was that yeah. them responding going, we know people, they could see data or they, they expected that people would stop catching cabs like and, or, or uh, they catching cabs. And... Yeah, the data was right, right in front of their mm. face. Um, it, it, um, but we've been, one three things has been something that um, uh, has been, you know, like, like there's always multiple different things or scenarios you can, you can go out, and it's, it's something that we've played around with um, previously and thought about with the business. But the um, coronavirus kind of just sharpened the muscle and just made us launch that straight away. And the rules, uh, I've spoken to um, a couple of people, like Richard Curtis I interviewed as well and from Future Brands, and said, well, the, the rules are off. Like, say, six months ago, one free cab saying now we're a courier company, people would have maybe shrugged their shoulders and thought... See, that seems a bit different, but but um, why don't you stick to your knitting? But now it kind of makes sense, and I, I don't. I would have thought that there'd be a sort of a, a consumer sense that um, you're helping out, like one three cabs is helping out the community. There's a real need for that. We, um, I reckon that's, that. I, I love that question. I reckon that's been amazing. The goodwill, like the goodwill everyone's giving everyone who's trying to get in on a solution, no matter what it would be, and everyone's kind of pumping up each other's tyres, so to speak, and saying, yeah, well done. I think it's fantastic mm-hmm. to see. And that leads to genuine innovation and, and good creativity and problem solving when everybody's kind of enthusiastic of everybody's efforts. Um, you know, I think, so I think that's fantastic. Another company called Billy Care looks after, um, really innovative local company, looks after old people by providing monitoring services in their homes. And again, um, when you can't go into, you, you can't, you know, interact with them. It's like the ultimate kind of, uh, you know, it's a very, very good tool to have for people to be able to do this at the moment. And they're, um, you know, and they're try, trying to work out how to communicate in this environment now uh, where they've got this option that's 
fantastic for people, and I just need to make people know about it, but having limited funds to be able to do that. Mm. And and Vegemite's one of your clients. I understand that they had a big growth in their sales as well. Is that? Yeah, they have. So how do you deal with a client? Like, I was speaking to a, I think they were a pastor company last week, and they said, oh, our, our issue at the moment is keeping up with demand. And it's quite high pressure, but but we don't need to be marketing at the moment, maybe, that, I guess was that general sense, uh, because at the moment it's just keeping up with demand, so it's all 24-hour production. Like, what, what about Vegemite? How do they, did they just well, sort of, did they expect it? Did they? Well, I think any business that's, um, uh, that people are buying a lot more of, then their challenge becomes uh, encouraging consumption of mm. said item over a very well-stocked pantry. Yeah. So the challenge might change a little bit from penetration to consumption. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So, so I think, yeah. I think there might be conversations around that with with the pasta makers and the Vegemites of the world yeah. and stuff like so that. So rather than having a great big box of Vegemite, you've got to eat that Vegemite now. So in six months' time, Vegemite doesn't have a a major plummet in sales because everybody doesn't need any more. Is that? Yeah, I just, do you see what Coles did today? So Coles have just launched this whole uh, the cooking series. Their, their ads have become uh, kind of basically menus and cooking ideas and so forth. It's a, it's a great pivot to help people just solve the daily dilemmas and help you know help with cooking as opposed to just providing uh, dollars off a can of beans or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's been that really that, that great change of people are spending more time at home and they're they're not eating out. So you've got restaurants who are oh. who are pivoting to kind of just have packs that you can get at home yeah. and cook your own meals or So personally, the last two weeks I've been using Atlas Fine Dining. So Atlas Fine Dining is one of Melbourne's premier uh, restaurants and they've now gone into home delivery where they deliver these massive boxes and for two or three nights here. So last week we cooked um well this week it's all Israeli food. Last week it was all Thai, and I'm cooking up a storm. So they give you fresh food, is that right? Help. Fresh yeah. ingredients and yeah, yeah, and it's just great. But it's also you know they've got nine staff, I think, or twelve staff or something. Now those twelve staff are in the meal prepare business and curing out these big boxes, whereas they used to be, you know, waiting tables and so forth. And so it's fantastic how he's managed to pivot the business really, really quickly. Mm. And I guess you. You pivot quickly because you have to, and 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 it shows how quickly we can move. I think over the last decade we've had lots of conversations about. I think you've had, um, I guess, sort of um, debate about whether they're good terms or not, but about agility and design thinking and all of those things. Now we've really been forced a lot of businesses of going, oh shit, we better we better change quickly. And and, it's, and it's, it's been a really. I reckon, I reckon the shittest category in Australia is tertiary education, and it's. The, what tertiary education has offered is so far behind what they should be offering uh, because it's such a lucrative business. And now they've completely reinvented their product very, very quickly on how to do online learning properly. Mm. And I think changes you're going to see in tertiary education are even are going to be fundamental, completely revolutionise that industry uh, forever, yeah. for example. Yeah, even a lot of the work we'll do. Like it, it, it's a, and it's this, you, you've got your, um, your your views on research, but when we do consumer research and we'll ask people, do you want your um, education delivered face-to-face or online? And, and where, where there's that demand for online, it's certainly going that way. People go, oh, no, I like face-to-face. So it's this whole thing where now it changes and people go, well, if online's the only option, suddenly we change the default from going to a uni to 
well, you can't go to a uni. You need to do it face to face. You need to do it online, and 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 that that rapid kind of adoption yeah. changes. But then the but then the face to face stuff isn't just sitting in a bloody lecture theatre, three hundred people get being bored. The the face to face stuff has value, and if you aren't going to bother to invest in getting people into the same room together mm-hmm. to have a more richer experience or whatever it might be, then make it worthwhile for everybody. Yeah. Don't just um, deliver some try. Yeah. So don't be lazy. Like you look at it. Like the universities have been. I think they're one of the few exports in Australia that's that's non mining related. Yeah. Um, and, and but they've been lazy because they've they've had so much money coming in, and it's mainly come from China. And then China kind of puts on the pause, and and we go, oh fuck, we're sort of um, we're stuffed. Um, so it's sort of it, it, yeah, it's about kind of and so you, you you'll sort of do you sort of sense that organisations like unis, for example. Um, will we'll change more rapidly and will become more innovative as a result? Yes, and or? become better. I think so. I think most of them still think online learning is putting the acetates online available for people to download. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, they've been very, I think a lot of them have been very, very slow to, to get into to remote learning. I think it's forcing them all to get into remote learning and then find, and then as you say, they'll be able to find the balance of, a better pedagogy that, that's that's more suitable for the modern times that that embraces technology. All this stuff they should have been done should have been done years ago, but they've all avoided it because they haven't really bothered to invest in it. They haven't had to because the, yeah. the money was there doing what they did before. Yeah, and maybe protecting what they had. They, they didn't want to change the model because the old model potentially worked worked well. Yeah. What about if, like? If, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, no, go on. Um, the, the idea, one of the things I guess early on, I'm probably sort of getting a bit more comfortable with it now, but early on, that sadness about losing personal connection, you talked about people seeing you on the street and saying hello, but what about that idea of what unis or shopping, say that maybe the new, new default isn't about going to, going to a shop, it's everything becomes online, which, which was the way things were going anyway, or, or cocooning yeah. was being talked about for years since back in the 80s, and now we're kind of cocooning in our house because of um, health reasons. So wait, do you kind of see, do you kind of get a sense of whether we'll kind of, there's a hunger for people to kind of go, we can't wait till this is all over so we have much more social interaction? I, um, I, uh, I hate efficiency. I think efficiency is the, is the devil and efficiency is what kills the world and mm. kills humanity. And it's a really seductive um, a really seductive beast because you think things are better because they're efficient, but it's actually just stripping us of our of our soul. And uh, I kind of use the analogy, or not the analogy. Look at any kind of science fiction writer when they set stuff in the future. Really efficient, soulless, lose our individual individuality, walk in unison, all wear spandex, all have the mm-hmm. same haircuts, all that kind of stuff. What I'm noticing at the moment, my days now are really efficient. Uh, so I'm on Zoom. I'm having these efficient meetings back to back to back to back to back, and then I stop work, and and that and then I start the next day again. Yeah, okay. And it's so efficient, and it's almost I'm scared it's becoming soulless, and I think oh shit, it just worries me when I when it, it's much more efficient to have all these meetings rather than get in the car or get in a cab and go somewhere and have a meeting bounce around, talk about shit at the bar or whatever and then do some more work, then get distracted and, and have a messy day. It's much more efficient to work like this at home on my own with a computer and that scares the shit out of me. Mm. 
I think at, at some level my soul is probably being hung out to dry. Yeah, and I think that I, I, I'm on the on a arts board. I've been on for about ten years, and we had our first board meeting last night, sitting in the sitting in the um in a, in a side room. Everybody sort of in their in their homes, and it was a little bit. It, it was exciting, and you can sort of see all the screenshots around the internet of people doing their team meetings with um, zooming in. But it was a little bit, little, little bit sad. And I wonder. I thought, I thought after that of going, are we going to get, are we going to get more to the point where teams go, oh no, I don't want to come in. I'm just going to zoom in, or uh, so the will kind of change that way. I guess. Or, or oh, do- I, I think, I think I, uh, it's kind of the same answer. I think it'll put a premium. This whole thing is going to put a premium on face to face contact and and real engagement. And if you are going to make the effort to meet up, then that time is going to be valuable and you're going to work harder at making that time yeah. uh, better. So there'll be less shit meetings. In the future. So it's special, yeah. So it's a special. Like you, you must have clients. We've got clients as well, government and otherwise, who just have meetings after meetings after meetings. And I'm sure most of the people don't contribute. So I think it's maybe that will sort of start to... Um, start to wane as you're going through i was thinking about the one of my pet hates over recent years has been the discussion around cx and like it like and um user-centered design but probably particularly about cx related to internet and and shopping but i kind of would say that the cx almost takes all the joy out takes the human out of kind of out of computer interactions how do you bring the joy into all of this so this is why obviously going down a technology adoption as Certainly, I would have thought being pushed ahead um, over this sort of period because it's had to. But how do you bring joy into CX? Um, by doing things like that. Yeah. By inappropriately promoting my book as my <laughs> virtual background. Um, you know, like uh, I don't. I think by I think again, human centered. I'll leave it up there for a little bit. Yeah, no, go for it. Leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Humans, human-centered design, I, I hate, and I, uh, I do hate CX, and I do hate, but I think it's like, um, uh, the analogy I use is it's like going down a road, a pothole road, and just filling the potholes with post-it notes and, and thinking you're doing good in the world. Um, whereas um, having, a, having a strong brand idea or having a strong visionary thought and putting that out to the world is more interesting. So I think creativity not born from problem solving, but born from creating value or creating new things or mm-hmm. charm or something uh, interesting or draws people to, uh, is, is a more interesting way to, to, is a more interesting form of creativity for me rather than going around and looking at where all the bumps are in the road and then trying to eradicate them, which is what human-centered design is. Uh, that's, that's my uh yeah, I, know, uh, I agree. The definition of it. But how do you bring the joy? I, I get. I, I would have. My sense is that CX has taken all the joy out of interaction. So we don't deal with people in shops. We certainly don't at the moment. But we weren't, weren't dealing with people in shops. But CX was about efficiency, and maybe maybe that's what you want sometimes. You want to be able to get a product quickly and move through. Although Kmart's now putting in a waiting queue even in there online, which takes even makes it even more um, joyless. But how do brands have a have a technology interaction? But bring joy into it. Is it about surprises? Is is it? it uh, I read, well, I reckon. It, I, I don't, well, it's hard to answer that as a sweeping generalization, as a sweeping statement. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting is understanding principles like the effort paradox. So the more effort you put into something, the more you value it. Uh, so IKEA, for example, are the masters of the effort paradox. 
uh, you have to, you know, drive a long way, walk right through a massive maze and then buy something and complete it yourself. And by doing all of those little steps, you tend to value that brand or those products more. Apple are the masters of it. Inbuilt obsolescence constantly get you to buy new things and new ways of putting things together and dongles and so forth. They get you to put effort into being a part of Apple. So none of that is CX driven. None of that is human centered design. None of that is putting the customer first. That is all putting the brand first and being visionary about what that brand's about and then getting the customer to put some work into the relationship they have with that brand. Just understanding some basic principles of how humans work and what we value uh, is an antidote, I think, to um, to efficient to 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 the to the joyless world of efficiency. The other thing I think that's a real antidote to that is a really strong visionary brand idea and brand purpose. And by purpose, I mean proposition. I don't mean it has to be. I just mean you just have to have a clear understanding of what that brand's about. And then if that's your guiding force, then you can keep on finding different ways to express that rather than looking for problems to solve at the customer level that takes you to efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You've talked about the pratfall effect before. Um, I think I went to a talk, you went, you, you discussed that. Can you talk about the pratfall effect and how organisations maybe should embrace yeah. imperfection, so- I think it's... Yeah, the pratfall effect was developed in the 60s uh, before um, it was was named in the 60s and kind of uncovered. And that was the time before universities had ethics committees where they used to do much more interesting types of studies. But it basically shows that if you tend to fuck up or make mistakes as an individual, if people see you as kind of mildly competent before that, then their their competence, their level of competency in you increases Mm. and their level of liking for you increases. So the more they see you fuck up, as long as they see you as having some level of confidence, uh, the more they like you because it allows them in and lets them in. And we're starting to see that in terms of robotic design and AI as well. People prefer robots with inbuilt um, mistakes in them. Uh, humans shy away from perfection. We think it's artificial. We think it's something to worry about. And again, if you come to the science fiction movies of the future, when we see something perfect, we'll go, oh, shit, something's not right here. So, you know, we've studied this a little bit. We show people, you know, a, a perfect cookie and an imperfect non-Photoshopped cookie. And we ask people which cookie they'll prefer to buy and they'll take the imperfect non-Photoshopped one. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Um, so all of that, that's another way of stopping to, stopping stopping this kind of mad mad chase for efficiency that's and right. meeting after meeting on Zoom. That's right. And the... And the- I guess the cleverness comes in of how do you program a robot or a website to have nice little imperfections that don't piss yeah. you off but kind of embrace you. There's a, um, there's a guy called Bubba Schiff who's a behavioural economist who wrote a good paper called um, uh, something like Manufacturing Blemishing or When Blemishing Leads to Attractiveness and, and some various steps they've taken in, in artificially creating blemishes in products to see uh, if people's preference for those increase. So a good analogy they use is if, if a restaurant has got a three-star rating, this is not a good analogy for this time, but this is before Corona, obviously. If a restaurant has got a good a five-star rating and the reviews say the parking's really bad, it makes people want to go to that restaurant even more because you suddenly think, oh, shit, if the parking's bad and it's still got five stars, that means yeah, the food okay. yeah. must be incredible. Yeah. So as long as it's not central to the proposition of why you're going there, uh, the blemish can really... Um, make people like it more. I think it works in a similar way to the effort paradox, what I was talking about before. 
Whereas if you find yourself putting some something in or contributing in some way to that brand or that brand experience, you're going to value that a lot more. That's right. Um, and, and I know this is kind of, I know a lot of your audience are in the world of research, but what I find fascinating about this is how you research that. How do you do a quantitative survey and say, if you put more effort into this shopping experience, you're going to value it more. Um, discuss. Mm. You know what I mean? Like how how do you come up with those? How do you design your questionnaires and so forth that don't just lead to a whole lot of problems that you then go about trying to eradicate? Mm. I, I, I guess I've always had a bit of a philosophy of researchers understanding who people are, not what they want. So I think it's sort of, I think often ah, research does come beautiful. Yeah. So I think that's kind of my, my general take. Um, and it's interesting that. with blemishing and the pratfall effect. It's about being, by and large, doing a good job and occasionally having stuff-ups. It's not about stuffing up all the time. It's about... <laughs> so it's like we, we've, got a, we've got a client that um, had a major public disaster and they really held off. They held off from taking it public. They were worried about it. I think their leaders um, were worried about kind of getting kind of a big kick up the bum. Um, but what they should have done, because by and large, they do, do a really great job. They should have just come out and said, we stuffed up. Um, sorry about that. We're putting some new processes. We're going to fix it in the future. But we're, we're human. We, we, we make mistakes and we're right. going to grow from it. Any good relationship council will talk about having a trust bank and all that kind of stuff. And if you've got lots of trust in there, you can take pennies out occasionally. Yeah. But uh, the way I talk about it is it has to be peripheral to the proposition. It can't be core to the proposition. So you can't stuff up on something that's core to the proposition. So if you're an airline and your planes keep falling out of the sky, people are not going to want to fly with you. Uh, but if it's, if it, you know, if there's something on the periphery of that that happens occasionally, but you've got really good service or whatever, then, then perhaps they will. That's good. All right. You've, um, we've touched on your book, but can we come back to your book and sort of say, like, what's it called? What's it about? What was this? What was the motivation to doing it? You've already sort of covered it a little bit, but sort of let's go a bit deeper. Um, sure, I'll put I'll put up the virtual background just for this selling moment. Yeah. Um, so stop listening to the customer. Um, try hearing your brand instead. It's just a it's a it's a plea if you like to just try to get more. Uh, brand focused in our thinking and understand what our brand stands for and then trying to marry that with what people want and need. I think at the moment the whole world is obsessed with understanding the customer but to the detriment of understanding brands. And so what tends to happen is no human needs a particular brand. We need the category that brand exists in and most of our needs and wants are at a category level. So you need a, you need a drink, you need a car, you need a bank. Uh, you need a tertiary education. And so we often find category insights that we then tend to fill our brand into. But uh, that tends to, I think, have a homogenizing effect mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. But the more you understand the customer, the more you're going to understand the category and you're going to meet the category needs, the more you deliver on that. So if you can understand, just reverse that a little bit, like I'm not saying consumer insights is not important, of course it is. What's more important is understanding what your brand's about and what your brand offers and what's true to your brand and then trying to deliver that. So it's just a plea to be brand-led, a bit more brand-led, not so customer-obsessed. Uh, and it's so hard. Customer-obsessed, customer-obsessed of we want, we want all the customers as ours. Is that, is that, is that kind of where you're coming from? That sort of that, we, that... Everyone, everyone at the moment every, has got so much data they're trying to make sense of all of their data about the customer hmm. that they think 
if they become customer obsessed, it's suddenly going to make sense of the data and they're going to be able to deliver a better business because mm -hmm. they understand their customer better. I just think that's only, I think that's 30% of a solution. I think 70% of a solution is understanding all of that data in relation to what your brand is about, mm -hmm. what, your, what your core business is and applying it to that rather than just to fill those potholes in the road, uh, which I think is what lots of people do with their data. Yeah. So in, embracing what your essence is and what you stand for rather than getting distracted by what the category is doing or what other what you think what the category norm might be. So being 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 strong about that. And particularly right. what your customers are wanting. So if your customer says they want black, you don't go just black because of the sake of it, you you kind no. of stick with your vision. That's right. And another example would be JB Hi-Fi. Uh, you know, like terrible shopping environment, really crowded alleyways, lots and lots of crap everywhere. But all of that kind of stuff just cues, you know, it's really strong cueing to system one that this is a cheap place to buy, really valuable to the to the to the business. If you listen to the customer, they'll say kind of widen the aisles and kind of get rid of all that crap and make a cleaner shopping experience, but it'll be at the detriment to that to that brand, I would imagine. Um, and and then the other book is uh, is called The Advertising Effect, How to Change mm -hmm. Behaviour, which is a book I wrote in 2014, which is just kind of a basic premise of behaviour change. Um, and action changing attitude, fast attitude changing action is that what that whole book's about. And it's about getting people to act first and then they'll think and feel second. So, again, kind of related to the effort paradox of getting yeah. people to take a step towards your brand or business. Yeah, yeah, that, that's excellent. So... JB Hi-Fi, sort of, they, 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 looking at their share price over the last five years, they just went and they grew very well. And, um, and now they're sort of obviously going through a, a complex time, so they've had to adjust. Do you sort of feel confident that they'll, they'll, they'll work through this? They've kind of obviously made some pretty quick decisions with all the sort of the, the chaos of COVID-19 and I think they closed some of their shops, particularly in New Zealand. But do you, do you find businesses like that will continue to kind of prosper moving forward? Um, I don't know. All I can say is that the people of JB Hi-Fi who are running the JB Hi-Fi business understand their brand. They seem to understand their brand and their business really well. So I'll, from what they've done previously, I would have confidence that um, that they'll do it again in the future. Like, you know what I mean? So it kind of, I don't know what the future of yeah. JB Hi-Fi is, but I do, I would back them because they seem to really understand what they're about. Yeah. And again, that comes back to your your book, where sort of they're, they're strong about what they stand for, and who they are as a business, and who their customer is. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. And so, therefore, when there's challenges to occur, I reckon they'll be brand led, and I reckon they'll try to pivot, but in a way that's right for their brand, not just go along with whatever everyone else is doing. They'll find a way to do it in a JB Hi-Fi kind of way i assume i have mm. no idea i've never met anyone from jb Hi-Fi. yeah okay where do you where, where does it go wrong like obviously or talk in, in say where, where research fits in but it, obviously there's the research going to have a gap is it within the organization of maybe kind of i don't know the, the team have all come from that category forever more and they're kind of almost got category kind of um blindness to a certain point where, where, where does I reckon, it i reckon it goes wrong in with time and scale. So a friend of mine said, never underestimate the power of tradition. And I know what uh, he means by that. So the longer the category is around, the more homogenous it tends to become. So um, it's very hard for if you're a big four bank to differentiate yourself 
from one of the other big four, mm. then you just have to rely on what Brian Sharp would talk about distinctiveness and just having some kind of distinctive assets that, that look different to others. So, you know, they're the one in your face at that time when they're talking to you. Um, the other way it would go wrong is if you completely chuck the baby out of the bathwater and don't uh, also understand what's happening in the wider world. And mm-hmm. so Kodak uh, could be all, could you know, just, uh, or blockbuster, mm-hmm. or, or, or things where, where they're just not understanding, um, not understanding the shift in the market. Like if you look at, if you look at blockbuster versus Netflix, mm-hmm. Uh, though you know one of them just wasn't able to kind of read the mood of the customer at all and died the other one was able to kind of uh, read the mood of the customer and also stay true to what it was about and and navigate its way through that so it's absolutely not just being internally focused I think Mark Ritson uh, I probably got this completely wrong so Mark Ritson talks about being market orientated so taking as opposed to being business orientated but I think people think that you're either business orientated or you're consumer orientated, and all. And all I'm trying to say is just be in, in be in the middle of those two things and mm. just be brand orientated. So, and a good brand always marries what you're good at with what people want. Mm. Mm. And so, just be brand orientated. Yeah, yeah. And and it sounds like having a beginner's mind, not being closed minded, knowing kind of where we're where we're sort of moving. I, I know um, we interviewed the, the ex. Um, CMO of Netflix, and it was interesting because they, they used data, but they said Netflix was so closed-minded in their their their, um, their business strategy that they kind of just basically imploded. And they, it was interesting because Netflix were um, they were monitoring sort of when when Blockbuster was going to run out of start running out of money because they they could sort of see some. The, well, I'm not sure what data they were collecting, but they could kind of get an idea of the challenge that the Blockbuster was actually having and um, yeah, and just 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 adjusting. But I'm sure Netflix was had their own vision of what they were trying to trying to create, and and Blockbuster got kind of a bit lost. So there we go. Yeah. Um, what's what's um your suggestions for young people moving forward, or I don't know business strategists? Like we usually sort of finish off with a we start off with you as a young person. But what what's your suggestions for you know, young people, young at heart, or I don't know. Uh... Uh, somebody asked me this question earlier today in relation to creativity, and I reckon go deep. I reckon just go deep in areas that interest you and not multiple ones. I reckon just pick one or two or three things and be really go really, really deep in a few things because um, as everybody gets a shallower kind of surface level understanding of everything, people who have a kind of a deeper understanding of a couple of different specific areas will get drawn upon. And you may, they, those, those areas you go deeper may have nothing to do with your career or mm-hmm. uh, or anything. You'd have to have some level of passion in order to go deep. But you can just keep on drawing from that well uh, of information that you have and you've got your feet on the ground because you know a lot about that. So it gives you a sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. I, reckon it, I reckon it's hard to go deep in anything these days because there's so much distraction and so much superficial knowledge easily available. So, um, you know, I started my life as a, um, I started my working career as a, in forensic psychology, working in the prison system and got really into that and, um, and did that for some years. And I still draw on that a lot uh, in various, it, it, in various ways, um, just because I know a lot about it. 
and um, and I don't know. It's, it's intangible. It's hard to say what the value is, but I do like the idea that I've got this whole pool of information over there and a couple of other areas that make me feel really, really confident when mm-hmm. I'm talking about those kind of things. And also, it's just kind of I know that it's in my head. And I can't do anything about it. So then, when there's a problem over there, there's a whole lot of uh, deep kind of thought that I'm applying yeah. from there to that particular problem all the time that nobody else is. So therefore, I've got a different perspective yeah. just because I know that stuff. Yeah. Uh, whereas it's easy to get superficial knowledge on everything. That's what that's what life is forcing us to do. Mm. So everybody's so, going to be an expert. Yeah. It's... Yeah. So go deep. Yeah. And. How should strat- how should businesses, brand managers, be behaving at the moment? What, what what would you be suggesting? Say a marketing manager, for example, or a brand manager should be doing. I think it just. I think you have to understand what area. Right now, you need to understand what area of the market you're in and what's happening. And I, and I, the, the kind of key areas I look at is this having a positive impact on your business or a negative impact, and how long is this impact going to last for? Uh, is it going to be a blip in your business or is it going to be forever changing it? And then I'll start to break down the problem like that, I reckon. Yeah, all right. Good. Thanks, Adam. I think we've covered most of what I need to cover. We've covered a huge amount. Um, best way for people to contact you or follow you, either on Twitter or anything like that? Or Yeah, Twitter. Thanks for thanks for putting that out there. Twitter's easiest, uh, at, at Adam Ferrier on Twitter. And I'm also um, uh, you know quite active on LinkedIn. Um, or, you know, email me or pick up the phone. All right. Thank you. What's the picture behind you, Adam? I can sort of, you got a bit of art behind you. and uh, It's just, it's, it's the Virgin Mary with um, uh, the three wise men drawn in graphic kind of phallic form, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it's in my study and it, it's not allowed to be anywhere else in the house because my wife finds it offensive. All right. Thank you so much. That was great. It, really does have a bit, it does have a bit more story to it than that. I didn't think you'd ask, but, um, but maybe I'll tell you offline as well. Yeah. All right. Good on you. I'll, I'll stop the recording. Thanks, mate. Take care. Right.